0: very conscious that there are bits and pieces in the Bible that all of us tend to avoid. Little bits that perhaps we're not particularly interested in, we think, or that we find difficult. And uh, they're there, nevertheless, and we can't just brush them aside. So tonight, we'll see how tonight goes. It's going to be one of these uh, type things. If you're new here, that means good. That means please stop now. Um, oh, sorry. That means please stop now. Um, what we thought, what I thought we would do is, is do a new little series, if, if, if this goes all right tonight. Uh, really looking at some of the small books of the Bible, because although they may be small, they've certainly got a very big message. And I think that uh, very often it's so easy, isn't it, just to flip over in your Bible. Pages get stuck together and all of a sudden you've passed Obadiah and you're going, Obadiah, Obadiah, Obadiah. You don't do that. It's only me, is it? Okay. But um, I think uh, these books are incredibly important for us and uh, that's what I'm wanting to do. We'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. The last thing I want is for it to turn into a history lecture. But I think that uh, part of the problem is that sometimes we don't see where these things fit in. To the Bible and to history. So, what I'll deliberately try and do is take you a little bit deeper into God's Word, give you some of the background, and then help us to see how that fits uh, with our lives today and what it's saying to us. Does that sound all right with you? Yeah, John Mack, are you okay with that? You're all right with that, that's okay. Um, How many of us want God to be on our side? Yeah, that's okay, all right. I think most of us would say yes. It's completely natural for us to want God to be on our side, and um, it's completely natural in the sense that we see it all played out in different ways in everyday life. I'm sure that uh, this past week, uh, UEFA's Nations League football, Wales against the Republic of Ireland, I don't know how you felt if you're into football. I guarantee you, though, that both sets of fans were praying to God asking that God would be on their side. Clearly, God's a Welshman, and uh, that worked all right. Um, Or is he? Every time we have an election, there are people praying that God will be on the side of the candidate or the party that they support. They're praying that God will help their candidate win. Those of us who are blessed with children... And we have a child who's applying for a job, maybe. Like any parent, we've all prayed this prayer, God, please give them a job. Get them out of our house, give them a job. (laughs) We want God to be on our side. Whose side is he on? During his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln addressed the idea of whose side God was on during the American Civil War. And he wrote this. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And those words are very consistent with Lincoln's reply on another occasion when he was asked if God was on his side. He said this, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. So I want to ask you again, how many of us would like God to be on our side? Just reflect on that as I take you on a bit of a journey this evening through the book of Nahum. Now if you looked at your uh, newsletter, you'll have seen that our reading is going to come from that letter, and Gareth's going to... Uh, read for us in a little while from that book. But before Gareth comes to read for us from that book, why don't you try and find it in your Bible? First one to find it gets a prize. You You found it already, you cheated. Have you got it? You found it? It's like sword drill, isn't it? The prize is, help yourself to anything from here. There you go. Does anybody, by the way, want a marrow? Plenty there. You do. You want tomorrow. God bless you. You'll be feeding the 5,000, Val. <laughs> honestly. Right. Let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Nahum. Hopefully, you've found it. It's on page 791 in my Bible. That won't help anybody, but there you go. I don't know how interested you all are in the historical background to the books of the Bible, but I honestly think that at times in church life, it's good to deliberately go deeper into the historical background of the narrative that's being played out in the books of the Bible, so that we fully understand the context into which perhaps a prophet was speaking. Because when we understand the context into which a prophet is speaking, we therefore obviously understand far better why they're saying what they're saying. But by also doing that, we are then able to better understand what God is saying to us today. Now, this is a fascinating little book. I think Nahum's going to be one of those guys in heaven, you know, he's going to come up to us when we get there and go, wait, 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 did you read my book? Did you read my book? Because I think a lot of us, the truth is, we're like, oh, Nahum, let's leave him. Because the book of Nahum is a little bit difficult. Uh, If you look at the background, um, I mean, it's a perfect follow-up to the book of Jonah. Let me just tell you that straight away. Uh, Nothing uh, of the author is really known apart from what we see there in verse 1. In the contemporary English version, it says, I am Nahum from Elkosh. This is the message that I wrote down about Nineveh. Now, Elkosh. Now, I took Sarah around uh, Ponte de Lice, Ammanford. We never found Elkosh. Anybody here been to Elkosh? Anybody here got an idea where Elkosh might be? Anybody? Well, here we go, look. It's, it's, some people think it's actually what we now, in modern New Testament times, called Capernaum. So this is interesting. Already we're starting to understand, because if you try and find Elkosh Kosh, on your RAC map, you'll be struggling. So if it's true that it is what's now commonly regarded uh, by the time we get to the New Testament as Capernaum, we know something about Capernaum. I'm not going to go into all of that. You can look that up yourself in your Bibles. But it's fascinating to know that this may well indeed be where he's from. Now, like the book of Jonah, the message that Nahum preaches is directed towards a particular place. Do you remember where Jonah preached his message to? Nineveh, okay? Nineveh vinegar. how you remember things, isn't it? See, that's the way I remember it anyway. But the problem is, it's about, I don't know, 100, 150 years after Jonah had preached that message. Now, you remember what happened when Jonah went to Nineveh and preached a message? He preached a message, you know, God's furious with you because you are sinning and everything. You need to repent. And the people repented. The people turned around and gave uh, their full attention back to God. They heard the message, they repented, and that was great. But it's now 100, 150 years later, and unfortunately... You can guess what's happened. The people have gone back to their old ways. Identify with that, can you? Yeah? We've all been there. Come to a service, been moved, determined, you know, that we're going to live a certain way. We're going to stop this, stop that. We're going to start this, start that. And then gradually over time, we lapse. Well, that's exactly what had happened. A new generation had been born. People now no longer talked about the days of Jonah and the massive revival that had come. They just lapsed back into their own ways. Now, historically, if you want to put the ministry of Jonah into context, you might not be able to see that very clearly. But it's during the reign of a guy called King Jeroboam II. You thought a Jeroboam was a particular size of champagne bottle, didn't you? I, I, I know, but it's not. He's a king. And he's number two, he was king over Israel in the north, probably sometime between 790 and 749, 753, something like that. So that's happening up there in the north. Nahum is ministering in the south, in Judah. You know all about this north-south stuff, don't you? I hope you do anyway. And some of the stuff that you read as you read through the book of Nahum Helps you narrow down roughly the kind of time frame he's operating in. We know, for instance, that he had to be ministering after 663, because in chapter 3, he talks about the fall of a place called Thebes, and that occurred in 633. So he couldn't talk about it if it hadn't happened. So it's obviously happened already. And the latest that his message could have been given is about 612 which is when the events that he prophesied about were fulfilled, uh, the defeat of Sennacherib. Sennacherib is a great name in it, the king of Assyria. Why don't people name their children like that now? What name do you give to this child? War. It'd oh, be brilliant. Anyway, so if you want to look at the historical context for all of this, all you need to do is open your Bible and you can go to Isaiah 36 and 37 and 2 Kings 18 and 19. And that'll give you some of the background that's going on. You know, until I went to Bible college, I didn't realize that you could look at other bits of the Bible to understand what's going on in other bits of the Bible. Very often we tend to think that this bit's written in isolation because it's got absolutely nothing to do with anybody else or anything else. But you start to piece pieces together and you start to see things that overlap and intertwine and everything. Everything. We learn in those chapters in Isaiah and two kings that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had invaded Judah. He was on the march towards Jerusalem, the capital. And of course, the people of Judah were petrified. They were bricking it, understandably. And so as we're going to see this evening, what the people of Judah wanted to know was, is God on our side? That's what they wanted to know, fundamentally. But they had to learn, as indeed our dear friend Lincoln had learned himself, it's more whether they were on God's side. So with that in mind, we're now ready to read Nahum chapter 1, and I hope you've now found it in your Bibles. Uh, Gareth's going to come and he's going to read for us from the ESV version, I think. Thanks very much, Gareth. Bless you.
1: An oracle concerning Nineveh, the Book of the Wisdom of Nahum of El-Kosh. God's Wrath Against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are all consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more and now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off.
0: Thanks, Gareth. The problem, whatever version you were reading uh, of that uh, particular chapter, uh, the problem with the book of name, it's, it's a bit difficult to understand One of the reasons is that he's actually speaking to two different kinds of people. He's speaking a word of comfort to the people of the south in Judah, who are petrified, remember, that the invading army is going to come and wipe them out. But at the same time, he's speaking a word of judgment against Assyria for blinking, coming in heavy-handed upon Judah and doing all of this in the first place. So it can be a bit difficult to figure out, really, who's he speaking to at any one time. But his overall message is very clear and very important. It is more important for us to be on God's side than it is for God to be on our side. Now, you remember what I said earlier. The wonderful thing here is that we can see this as a follow-on from the ministry of Jonah. But 100, 150 years previously. Time's gone on. Jonah had gone in, he'd confronted the people, and they'd repented of their sin. But as we said, after a few generations, 100, 150 years later, the people have gone back to their wicked ways. They've forgotten what used to happen. So in 1904, there was a great revival in this land of Wales. Here we are, not 150 years later. Are we? And where are we? A land that tasted all that God had in store. That tasted what it meant to be a nation under God. And yet here we are today. So we see in our own history that we understand just what the people of Nineveh were going through. It's a difficult time. It's a difficult time to be a prophet of God, bringing the word of the Lord as well. So the book of Jonah, as you'll know, focused really on God's mercy. But the book of Nahum focuses on his judgment. It's the same God. Remember that, won't you, as we go through this this evening? Because even though it might appear like it on the surface, it's not that God was one time on Nineveh's side in the book of Jonah, and now he's changed allegiances in the book of Nahum. A lot of us go through life and tend to think that there are times when God is for us and times when he's against us. That it's as though if we don't earn enough brownie points in this religious life that we live, in some ways God's going to say, no, not today, away with you. Now that may be something that we can identify with in our own life but it's certainly not true of God. It's not about him choosing sides. Remember, it's more to do with asking, it's more important for me to be on God's side than it is for God to be on my side. Look how he begins his prophecy. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn it open to verses 2 through 6? It's amazing to see that he really does paint a picture here of calamity. The Lord God demands loyalty. In his anger, he takes revenge on his enemies. The Lord is powerful, yet patient. He makes sure that the guilty are always punished. He can be seen in storms and in whirlwinds, clouds and the dust from his feet. The Lord's command, oceans and rivers dry up. Bashan, Mount Carmel, the Lebanon wither. Their flowers fade at the sight of the Lord. Mountains and hills tremble and melt. The earth and its people shudder and shake. Who can stand the heat of his furious anger? It flashes out like fire and shatters stones. Now Jonah was more interested in God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion, his patience. Those were elements of God's nature that he wanted to concentrate on. Here, though, in these verses, you see that Nahum is focusing on God's vengeance, on his wrath, on his justice, on his power to carry out these things. They're equally parts of God's nature. But these things are very, very applicable now to the situation in Nineveh. But then in the middle of that, you've got that beautiful verse tucked away, verse 7, the Lord is good. He protects those who trust him in times of trouble. The comfort that God is bringing to Judah. Even though his people have often rebelled against him, if you read the accounts of Isaiah and two kings, you'll see that the king of Judah, Hezekiah, has come before the Lord. He has prayed on behalf of the people of Judah. He's anxious about what's happening. And... They conclude the Lord is good. He protects those who trust him in times of trouble. Your world may be falling apart. There may be things going on in your life tonight which feel like the storm is raging. You may feel that God in some ways is being vengeful, that there are things he is trying to discipline you about in your life. But I want to remind you of this truth from God's word. In the middle of all of that in Nahum, we're told the Lord is good. He protects those who trust him in times of trouble. That's so important, isn't it? These people have chosen to be on God's side. And so God is going to be their stronghold. He's going to be their place of refuge. Verse 9, if you read on. Uh, returns to his message of judgment against the Assyrians, warning them, you know, don't plot against the Lord, whatever you do, he wipes out their en- his enemies and they never revive. And that message goes on through to verse 12. He speaks about a flood in verse 8. Did you see that? It's like a roaring flood. The Lord chases his enemies into dark places and destroys them. People caught up in the tsunami talk about the water raging and chasing them down the streets as they sought to get away. When water comes, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a flood. Maybe you remember the floods here in Risca many, many years ago. I've seen pictures of them. Devastating things, the damage that water does. But when it comes, it can almost chase you and follow you and, of course, get into every nook and crevice that there is. It's interesting, by the way, that... uh, Uh, historical records show us that during the final stages uh, of a siege of Nineveh by the Babylonians, uh, unusually heavy rains came. This is extant uh, biblical material. This is Bible material outside of the Bible itself. And it shows that flood came, undermined the city wall around Nineveh, which collapsed And uh, they're able to determine all of this when they then found Nineveh again in the 1840s. It was gone, washed away, lost. So you see, God will deal with the Assyrians. Like a roaring flood, the Lord chases his enemies into dark places and destroys them. God will deal with the Assyrians. Now, if you were a person living in Judah, you would be like, haha, yeah, yeah, God's on our side. Nah, 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 nah. Well, you would. He's gone through the chapter, you see verse 14, Nahum continues to tell the Assyrians that God is going to completely wipe them out to Syria. This is what else the Lord says to you, your name will be forgotten. I'll destroy your idol in your temple. I'll send you to the grave. You're worthless. And I All of that is going to happen. Of course, all God's wrath coming out against the Assyrians, that's good news for Judah, it'll bring peace. Verse 15, look towards the mountains, people of Judah. Here comes a messenger with good news of peace. Celebrate your festivals, keep your promises to God. Your evil enemies are destroyed and will never again invade your country. So I think, you see, in this chapter... Both the Assyrians and the Jews learn that it's important for me to be on God's side. That's far more important than it is for God to be on my side. This is not a question, you see, about some of the things that we cause division through. The West is very guilty of thinking God must be on our side because look how we've prospered compared to the two-thirds world. We Welsh are guilty of it. As a nation, we can be incredibly unkind in some of the things we say. The English can too, and the Scots and the Irish. Men can be towards women. We can often draw unfair parallels, thinking, I've heard Christian men say, well, I am a man. Of course, God is with me, not so much with you. You are just a woman. My wife said I could say that, so it's all right. (laughs) Why do we do things like that? Why do we say things like that? We're already seeing here, it's far more important for me to be on God's side than it is for him to be on my side. It might appear from a human perspective that God has changed sides with Nineveh, especially when it comes to them. The truth is, God never takes anybody's side, other than his own. So, as Abraham Lincoln rightly observed, the important thing is to be on God's side, because he's always right. So, that's the historical background. I hope you didn't think that was too much of a lecture. I hope you find that a bit useful, a bit, a bit uh, helpful in understanding the context, because I want to ask now, well, how does that relate to us today, then? Still with me? Okay, middle section now. What about you over there? Lacking oxygen. You're all right. Doing a thumbs up there. John, you're still with me? That's all right. Good. So how does this relate to us today? I think there are some incredibly important implications for what we read in this opening chapter of Nahum. It's a short book. We can be prone to just say, oh, what's the point in reading it? The message is huge. The first thing I want us to see here is this. When things go my way, it doesn't necessarily mean that God's on my side. Please understand that. When things go my way, it doesn't necessarily mean God's on my side. When things are going our way, there's a natural tendency for us to think, well, see, I'm blessed. I'm a man. I'm Welsh. I'm a Baptist. Of course, God's on my side. Not right. Not necessarily true. Forgive me, Pastor Tim, but when Wales finally won a Grand Slam, it wasn't because God was on their side. It wasn't because God was on the side of their long-suffering fans who, like me, had prayed for years that Wales would win. Nothing to do with it at all. Just because you get a raise or a promotion at work, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it doesn't mean that God's on your side, especially if you achieve that by flattering your boss or undermining a fellow employee, or dare I say it in this day and age, being a workaholic who's abandoned your family obligations. Just because you got an A on your report card doesn't mean God is on your side. Especially if you had to cheat or you had somebody else write the paper for you. Just because you don't get caught committing adultery doesn't mean that God is on your side. Just because you don't get found out for putting your fingers in the till, that doesn't mean God's on your side. Just because your preferred candidate wins an election doesn't mean that God is on your side or the side of that politician. God will never use circumstances in our lives to condone any kind of rebellion against the truths that he's revealed to us in his word. You do understand that, don't you? He will never be on the side of sin or evil or wickedness so using circumstances as a measure of whether God is pleased with my life or whether he's on my side, very dangerous. The only standard we should be actually using is God's word. Now, a second thing I think we need to note is this. And this is an interesting one in our day and age, isn't it? Good works are not a means of God's grace. They're a response to God's grace. This ties in perfectly well, I think, with what you were saying this morning, Pastor. Look again at the text. If you go back to your Bible and look at verse 12, you'll notice about keeping the feasts and fulfilling their vows, those weren't a prerequisite for God to act against the Assyrians. God doesn't tell his people to firstly clean up their act. If I had a quid... For every time I met somebody who said, I'm not good enough to come to church. I'd be a very rich man. How often, I wonder, have we prayed to God, Oh God, if I go to church three Sundays in a row, will you let me blah, 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 blah? We make these deals with God as if they are a means of gaining more grace from God. The statements in verse 7, they're not conditional in any way either. God is good. He's a stronghold and a place of refuge for those who know him, who love him, regardless of how good they've been. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who needs to hear that word. Regardless of how good you have been, God is good. And he will be your stronghold, your refuge. You may not have been walking the walk as well as you think you should be. You may have been flagging. You may well have been failing. I want to tell you, God hasn't gone anywhere. He's not changed. He's still that stronghold for you. Now, God is going to act against the Assyrians. Of course he is. His mercy towards Judah, though, isn't dependent at all on anything that they can do. God is going to do what he's going to do. He does that throughout history. And he's going to preserve a faithful remnant. And that's going to be a lovely thing to fulfill his purposes and his plans and offer his glory. Don't you see, my friends? That's the way God works. He's extended his grace and his mercy to you and me, not because we're deserving, not because we've got enough brownie points, no, 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 simply because he loves us and wants to do the best for us. Paul knew that. He wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. From beginning to end, knowing God, being in a loving relationship with him, being saved is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Even our faith, our ability to put our trust in him is a gift. And good works are a response to all of that. It's about what's going on under the surface, isn't it? It's the roots. As Pastor reminded us this morning, if we are rooted in Christ, then okay, it'll show itself we'll be doing good works. How do we know that? Thank you for asking. Paul talks about it in the very next verse there in Ephesians 2. Where is workmanship? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should, not, should, sorry, that we should walk in them. Faith and works have an important place in the life of every Christian. James links them together, as we saw this morning, for faith without works is dead. But remember this, your good works never get God on your side. They don't get us on God's side either. Only faith does that. So when things go my way, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is on my side. No amount of good works will get God on my side. And thirdly, well, thirdly, there's always hope no matter how dark things look. At the time of Nahum's prophecy, things were pretty hopeless for Judah. The Assyrians, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, had invaded their country, were on their way to conquer the capital, Jerusalem. It looked like nothing could stop them. The people were very aware of what the Assyrians had done in other parts of the world. They were petrified. They were ruthless, these people. And they were powerful. Judah were powerless, sorry, to stop the Assyrians coming in. But when faced with those seemingly impossible odds, as we heard a moment ago, King Hezekiah spoke to the prophet Isaiah and took his hopeless situation before the Lord in prayer. He said to God, basically, God, we're on your side and we're going to trust you for this situation. As a result of that prayer, if you read through the scriptures, you'll see that the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians overnight. And the next morning, Sennacherib returned home. He was killed by his two sons, whilst worshipping his false god. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> the One moment, Judah are pooping their pants. The next minute, it's like, Woo-hey! one moment they've got no hope at all. Then, Judah has hope. How does that relate to you tonight, I wonder? Maybe you're sitting here, and the truth is, When you go home tonight, you're going home to a situation that you can't fathom. Maybe your life at the moment, truly speaking now, is a cauldron from hell. Things are terrible for you. You can sit here and pray prayers and sing hymns and be all sweetness and light to other people. But I wonder, in a congregation of this size, there will be those of you for whom life is incredibly dark at the moment... You may not be able to see any sense of hope for the future. Maybe you've been told that you've got an illness. Maybe there's another problem. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're struggling with another relationship. just doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you're struggling with your finances and you can't see any way out. Maybe you're in a bad situation in your job and it seems absolutely hopeless Maybe it's just the overall feeling of hopelessness that comes from living in a culture that's increasingly hostile to God. Well, the prophecy of Nahum, this little book, it reminds us that even in the darkest of times, God's powerful hand is at work to bring justice to those who are not on his side and comfort and mercy to those who are. For those who are on God's side, there is always hope. Hold on to that. Because as we finish, I think it's important for me to just underline, if we're agreeing that it's important to be on God's side, rather than for God to be on our side, then it's probably pretty important to conclude by talking about how do you make sure you're on God's side? Well, the way you make sure that you're on God's side is by doing things God's way. Nahum didn't know about Jesus and the cross, but he beautifully hints at Jesus and the cross in verse 15. Did you see it? Look toward the mountains, people of Judah. Here comes a messenger with good news of peace. Celebrate your festivals, keep your promises to God. Your evil enemies are destroyed and will never again invade your country. We hinted at this earlier when we looked at Paul's words in Ephesians 2. The only way to be on God's side, to be safe, to be saved, is through faith in Jesus. That's so much more than just coming to chapel, that's so much more than just praying a prayer. It requires making a commitment to God that we'll do our best to live according to the principles that he's revealed to us in Scripture. Again, as I hope I made clear earlier, it's not our good works or our obedience to God that puts us on his side. There's nothing we can do to earn or merit that, but choosing to be on God's side does require us to yield control of our lives to him. So let me sum all of this up and ask you again that question, which I asked at the beginning. How many of you want God to be on your side? And how many of you want to be on God's side? It's very different, isn't it? We have to see the subtle yet real difference here. It's more important for me to be on God's side than it is for God to be on my side. Jesus understood that perfectly. Pray to his Father in the garden when he asked Father God, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was Jesus saying, I'm on your side, Father. This isn't about you being on my side. Would you be able to pray with me tonight? Not my will, but yours be done. Would you be able to say to God tonight, I want to be on your side as I go into this week that lies ahead?